Welcome, and thanks for checking out the Living Word Family Church Sermon Podcast. Before we get to the message, we'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. We are still going through the Bible cover to cover. Uh, It's been uh, a few months now. It's been a few years now. That's all right. We are... We have come to, we have been in 1 Corinthians for six weeks. I think this is number seven in 1 Corinthians. This is Paul's, we call it his first letter to the Christians in Corinth, but it was probably at least his second letter. It's 1 Corinthians in our Bible. And uh, we have come to chapter 12, which during my intro, I would encourage you to get it. Uh, message six in this book. Message, I don't know, 180 something in the series. I don't know where we're at, Kay, do you? 148 at all? Okay. Message 148 in the series. Where I introduced this book and told, you know, it'll, it'll help you understand why, why we get to this part when we get to this part. Paul, you remember, I think, is correcting some things. He's writing a letter, and, and not only is he correcting some things, he's answering questions. They wrote him a letter saying, hey, what about this? What about this? What about this? And now he comes to where he's addressing spiritual gifts. He already says... Uh, earlier in the book, that they, they fell behind in no spiritual gift. So it wasn't like, hey, we want these things, we've heard about them. They, were, they had them. But now he's addressing some specifics. And the first part of chapter 12 is really pretty straightforward. Uh, and in it, he lists the nine gifts of the Spirit. And they are the word of wisdom, the word of knowledge, faith, healings, miracles, prophecy, discerning of spirits, tongues, and interpretation of tongues. All right, uh, we have talked a little bit in the past and a little bit, I think, uh, a month or so ago about what these, what these gifts are. I'm not, the purpose of today's message isn't to do a breakdown of what all those gifts are. What we're really looking at today is the question of tongues because it is such, for some reason, and I think we'll address that reason today, it is a contentious doctrine. Uh, it's something that has divided people and, and turned people off and scared people over the years. And, and I know that I'm addressing a congregation that by and large doesn't need to be convinced uh, of, uh, of what the Bible says about it, uh, the efficacy of tongues, the usefulness, the, good, the, the overall goodness of this gift and this facility. But I think it's important that you listen today, no, no matter how convinced you are, uh, of this doctrine, because it will help you answer those who challenge you on it, right? So, one of the things I want you to see first that will help us to understand where Paul is coming from and the message that God is giving the Christians in Corinth through Paul is verse 11, when it says, but one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. So he lists these different gifts. We've got faith. Well, now, everybody has faith, right? But does everybody have the gift of faith? I think there's a difference. Uh, everybody has knowledge, right? But that's not, he's not talking about the gift of knowledge. He's talking about the gift of the word of knowledge, word of wisdom. These are prophetic. These are supernatural utterances that God grants uh, somebody the ability to bring forth. And one of the things that I will go on record as saying, and I cannot, I'm not going to get super dogmatic about this, and I don't think in the end it matters if I'm wrong about it, but I think when he's talking about God distributing each gift individually as he wills, I don't think 
uh, that this passage bears out the position that he more or less permanently endows us with a particular gift. In other words, I have the gift of tongues or the gift of prophecy or the gift of healings. I believe God can and desires to manifest or cause those gifts to be manifest in a particular individual, any individual at any time to meet a certain need. Meaning you can, if you allow God to use you, bring forth a prophetic word or work a miraculous healing in a moment that God grants you that gift. And it doesn't mean he has made you pow, a prophet, pow, a healer, pow, an interpreter. You can operate in those gifts, but it doesn't mean that gift is yours and it's yours permanently and it's yours only. So if somebody comes and brings a tongue, you say, well, that must not be my gift because that's his. It might be yours next time. That's what I'm saying. And, and we'll come back to that principle a little bit later. Because the next thing I want you to see, uh, it's important that we, that we hit this part. There's a lot to get through today, and I hope we can get through it all. Because it will make more sense in one message. There's this magnificent illustration about the body of Christ and how that we individually are members of the body of Christ. You are not the body of Christ. I'm not the body of Christ. But we are the body of Christ. Any more than my finger is not my body, but it is certainly a part of my body. And uh, the stress, uh, the, the, the emphasis that Paul lays on the fact that, just, that we cannot point at any individual in the church, in the body, and say, you're less important than me. Uh, you're less important than I. You're less important than somebody because your gift is uh, less important. Your gift is less impressive. He says that would just be like saying uh, that the head, saying, saying to the foot, I don't have any need of you, or the hand to the eye, or the eye to the hand. Every, these, our body works as well as it does because all the parts are there working like they're supposed to work. All right? We are a whole, just as our bodies are whole. And how useless our bodies would be if they were all one, if we were a giant finger or a giant foot or something like that. Our bodies are useful because of the various members and the specific roles that, 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 our, that the members of our body, the parts of our body perform. And we get this. We know that not everybody is going to manifest all these gifts all the time. Where I think we miss it is being okay with the idea that uh, I'll never prophesy, I'll never give a tongue, I'll never interpret, it's, it's just not my gift. We shouldn't be okay with that, uh, and I'll tell you why here very shortly. I want to skip forward here, because he, this, this uh, body illustration goes on for quite some time, and skip forward to verse 27 where he says this, Now you are the body of Christ and members individually. And God has appointed these in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, after that miracles, and then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, varieties of tongues. Now, I don't think, you know, it's interesting, he's talking about the gifts of the Spirit earlier in uh, chapter 12, and now he's talking about some ministry gifts and some positions, and uh, I don't think he's, when he says first, second, third, I really reject the notion that he's ranking these in order of importance. You know, the apostles or generals, okay, and this sort of, that's not what he's saying. I really do think probably, uh, number one, I think the, the number one thing he's doing here is to show you that there are distinct and different offices. And it's worth recognizing that some people are prophets, some people are teachers, some people are apostles. And I think possibly, uh, I even happen to believe pretty strongly that, that he's talking about the order in which these, thing, these, these ministries appear on the scene. 
know, there's the apostolic ministry to start the church, and then the prophetic voice, and so on. It's not anything to do with importance or rank. But then here's the kicker. Now, I don't want you to put this, this passage up there. I want you to listen to me, because these next two verses really will help us to understand some things. I'm going to ask the questions that this passage asks, and I want you to answer them with the answer that Paul is expecting. All right? So answer me. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Are all workers of miracles? Do all have gifts of healings? Do all interpret? Do all speak with tongues? No. But we believe everybody does, don't we? Or should? I do. So what's Paul saying here? Does that mean that the answer to all those questions is yes? Or that they're all yes and one should be no? Or all no and one should be yes? No. He's talking about two different things. Listen. Notice, first of all, that when he starts this, this series of questions, he's not talking about the gifts. He's talking about these ministries, the ministry gifts rather than spiritual gifts. He's talking about these roles, these ministries, the apostles, the prophets, and the teachers. These aren't listed in the nine gifts in, in earlier in chapter 12. Uh, and by the way, prophesying, if you operate in the gifts, again, if you operate in the gift of prophecy, that doesn't mean you, are, you have the ministry of the prophet. It means you prophesy. Talk a little bit more about that later, I think. But then he throws in three gifts, three gifts from the, from the earlier list, working in miracles, gifts of healings, and tongues, and then interpretation. And we feel a little bit of a pinch. I do, when he says, do all speak with tongues, because the obvious answer he, expect, he expects is no. We think we do. We should. The reason I wanted you to read all those chapters before we did this message is because I really do think that the answer emerges all on its own. Remember what Paul is addressing. He is not introducing the idea of spiritual gifts. He didn't start this chapter. You can read it. Read it in the context of the whole book. This this doesn't take any mental gymnastics at all. He's not saying, I have this new thing to tell you about. Here are these nine spiritual gifts. No, they were already doing these things. Paul is writing to correct them about how they're doing it and challenging them them on their motives, their misuse of them, I guess. The whole point of this discussion, his discussion, of the body is to combat the idea that any of them were superior to anyone else in their congregation because of a manifestation of a particular gift. Then he stresses that it is God himself who distributes these gifts for the edification or the building up, that's what edification means, of the whole body. Then he illustrates this with a series of questions pointing out the diversity of gifts and ministries, all aimed at getting them to think about the wisdom and value of this diversity. He's saying, look, it's good that somebody manifests this gift and somebody manifests this because it makes us more complete, just like it's good when you have all ten fingers, all ten toes, and both eyes and both ears and everything. We work better that way. It's the way we're designed, and we need what everybody brings to the table. And he's getting them to think about how they're doing it, why they're doing it, and then says this in verse 31 but earnestly desire the best gifts. 
Stop there for a second. And this is why I say it's not okay for us to say, eh, uh, I think some of us are like, well, it's important for me to be doctrinally correct on this. I want to uh, rightly discern the word of truth. And the Bible clearly tells us these gifts are there. So you know what? I'm not going to fight that. I'm going to boldly say, I believe in tongues. I believe in interpretation. I believe in word of knowledge, word, uh, prophecy, discerning of spirits, etc. But I'm okay as long as somebody else is doing it and I'm not. We don't earnestly desire the gifts at all. We want them to be present in our midst. I like the old King James Version there where it says, covet earnestly the best gifts. And I think uh, you know, people don't like the word covet. Well, he wouldn't really command us to covet because it says right there in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not covet. No, it doesn't. It says thou shalt not covet certain things. Your neighbor's wife your neighbor's possessions, etc. What, what does it mean to covet? One of my favorite definitions of covet is this, to not be able to be satisfied without it. It's not merely wanting something. I'm not coveting your car just because I want a new car or home or anything else. That's not coveting. Coveting is when my life starts to taste sour to me because I can't have something. Or don't have it. And Paul's saying you should not be satisfied without the best gifts. Now what are the best gifts? He doesn't rank them. What is the best gift? It's the gift that is needed in the body in this moment. It might be today. It might be a word of prophecy or a word of knowledge. It might be a, a, a miracle or a healing. It might be a tongue and interpretation. The best gift uh, that concept is fluid, day-to-day, week-to-week, group-to-group. So covet earnestly, or earnestly desire the best gifts, and yet I show you a more excellent way. This is the cardinal error that is committed by the cessationist. When we get to this, yet I show you a more excellent way, and then what does he launch into? Chapter 13, the great chapter on love. The cessationist, and the cessationist, again, is the person who believes that their doctrinal position is that the gifts are no longer in operation, that they were part of the apostolic age, that they were in operation in the early days of the church until something happened that we'll discuss here in just a minute, because there's no question that Paul does talk about the gifts stopping, ceasing. The big question is when. We'll get there in a second. But the cessationist believes that these things, yes, they did exist. Paul clearly talked about them, but they are not for today. Now, where uh, the individual minister or believer falls on their current day operation, what it means, varies greatly from person to person, church to church, minister to minister. Some simply say, well, people who still exhibit these gifts, and they'll put it in quotes, are simply in error. Others will go so far as to say it's demonic. If you are speaking in tongues, you are manifesting demonically. They still believe in demons, uh, but it's, 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 it's of the devil to, to still do these things. All right? So let's look at what the word actually says here. Because this is sort of the one of a one-two punch from the cessationist. Paul himself, who's talking about the gifts, then says, and yet... I show you a more excellent way, and then goes to talk about love. In other words, they would sum it up this way. God gave us these gifts, these gifts, these gifts. But at the end, uh, 
It's not that important. And here's why. Because what's important is love and only love. And since the gifts are not that important, that's why they'll cease. Sooner rather than later, the gifts will go away. And we today don't have to worry about trying to do them, trying to manifest them in our midst. The important thing is love, since love lasts forever. Since the gifts are temporary, which they are, we'll see that, black and white here in a second, let's don't worry about it. Love lasts forever, let's only concern ourselves with that. And Paul as much as said so here. Here are the gifts, but I'm going to show you something better than the gifts, and then talks about love. That is not at all what Paul is doing here. Not by a mile. Let's read it. Let's read the first three verses of chapter 13. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith, so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. There's a lot of stuff in there, and I'm not going to spend too much time on this, but there's a couple things in there I think I have to unpack just to clarify some things. When he talks, for instance, about tongues of men and tongues of angels, uh, this is almost an argument not worth having, but some people really do want to stress that tongues as it first appeared, second chapter of Acts, was clearly tongues of men. The people who were present and heard the apostles uh, speaking in tongues, the disciples speaking in tongues, uh, were amazed, but what amazed them was, hey, we recognize that all these men are from the same region, and yet I'm from clear over there, and he's speaking my language. He's speaking my language too. This guy's speaking my language. They could hear their own language. So these were tongues of men. Now, there's nothing in that passage that said that's the only tongue anybody would ever manifest. Later on, when it refers to the several passages where it re- refers to the disciples sharing the Holy Spirit with new believers, it said they knew they were filled with the, Holy, the same Holy Spirit they had. Why? Because they heard them speak with tongues. Didn't say what tongue. Could it have been tongues of angels? Absolutely could have been. How important is it? Not very. <laughs> okay? Here's why. Well, here's one of the reasons why. I've heard, and we're going to look at the concept of praying in tongues here just a little bit. But I've, heard that, I've heard it said that one of the most important things, the reason every Christian should pray in, tongue, and pray in tongues is because it's a guarded language. It's a secret language between you and God that the devil can't understand. And therefore, it's a protected speech. The, the devil can't interfere with the prayers. I reject that notion for... Uh, for, for this reason primarily. Whether it's tongues of men or tongues of angels, the devil probably speaks that language. All right? Now, if you speak uh, Russian and I speak Russian, and we're fairly certain nobody in the congregation speaks Russian, you and I can have a secret conversation right out here in the open, can't we? Uh, but does the devil speak Russian? Yeah, he does. <laughs> does he speak English? Does he speak Hebrew? Human languages are not a barrier to the demonic. But if we're correct, and I believe we are, about the origins of the, of the demonic, what did they all used to be? They're angels. Now they're fallen angels. And I believe they still understand angelic language. So if it's tongues of angels, they probably still understand it. Well, what's the advantage? Well, I believe when it comes to prayer in tongues, the advantage is we don't understand it. And therefore, our mind and our imagination and our fears can't get in the way. It's pure faith. As we offer these prayers to God in the language that God is giving us, a language we don't understand, we trust that the Holy Spirit is bringing out of us 
perfect prayer. We'll develop that here in just a minute. But I just wanted to address this when Paul talks about tongues of angels, tongues of men. When he, when he says tongues of angels, it's not necessarily a doctrinal statement. This, this passage here, some people, without challenging the authenticity of Scripture at all, say that Paul is using a lot of hyperbole here. I give all my possessions, give my body to be burned. If I have all faith, all this stuff, his point is I could do everything right in terms of certain uh, doctrinal issues and certain uh, performance, and I could still be wrong if my mode is wrong, if I'm not filled with love. All right? So then, uh, pick it up in chapter 4, or, sorry, chapter 13, verse 4. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. Is not puffed up. Does not behave rudely. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. Thinks no evil. Does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Bears all things. Believes all things. Hopes all things. Endures all things. Keeping in mind, he has just done a whole, what we would call a chapter on the gifts. He's going to get right back in to discussing the gifts. And here he is talking about this. It's still the same subject. What he's saying, though, is examine yourself even as you flow in the gifts or as you prepare or desire to flow in the gifts, as you prophesy, as you speak in tongues, etc. Is it to make you look good? Is it to demonstrate your spirituality to the congregation? Or is it for the body? Paul's reason for writing this chapter has everything to do with the gifts. This chapter, the love chapter, has everything to do with the gifts. And he's saying that the best way to determine if you're actually doing it right is if you are motivated by love for the body of Christ. I'm going to to yield to this. I'm going to obey God and allow myself to manifest this gift, not because I want to, but because God wants to for you. If it's not good for you, and my motive isn't for it to be good for you, then it's wrong. And I need to just shut up and sit down. I believe that what Paul was seeing or getting reports of were, were completely disorderly assemblies where sometimes nothing happened but tongues. And maybe they took turns, but if, if 100 people gathered, 100 people would come forth with a tongue, trying to show how spiritual they were. Now, I've seen videos of people I will leave unnamed having conversations in tongues that I frankly think is bogus because there's nothing in Scripture that supports that. But it sure made these individuals look spiritual. It doesn't mean they're hell. It doesn't mean they're heretical. I think they got caught up in a moment. I think they drifted into error. And maybe I'm wrong. But I don't see much in a moment like that that does anything except make somebody to appear to be on a higher spiritual plane than I could ever hope to be on. Is it good for the body? Paul says, and we're, I don't think we're, we're going to read the specific passage today. He says, look, man, if I, if I get up before you and uh, I say 10,000 words in a tongue, I might look spiritual, but it hasn't helped you a bit if there's not an interpreter. He doesn't expect them to be so spiritual that they all understand his tongues. Let's look at verse 8 here because now we come to the issue of cessation where the Bible talks about it. Verse 8 in chapter 13 says, Love never fails, but whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, 
But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. So verse nine, sorry, verse 8 says there will be an end to these things. Verse 9 tells us why there will be an end to these things. And verse 10 tells us when. Verse 9 tells us that the gifts are temporary and they don't produce a complete manifestation of the purposes and presence of God. We might get a taste of heaven on earth. We should. But this is not heaven. I read an article by a pastor that I know who basically said the whole message of... Uh, the, remember, the, remember Jacob's dream, the ladder? He saw angels descending and ascending. He said that the, the, the essential, central message of that story is that heaven and earth are the same place. Which doesn't even make any sense. That's like saying the first and second floor are the same floor. Why is there a ladder if they're the same thing? But this was his whole, his, his, the whole thing, that Christian maturity is recognizing that we are in heaven now. Dear God. May it never be. But at the same time, I've got to remind you, this ain't hell either. No matter how good it seems in this moment, don't confuse this with heaven. But no matter how bad it gets, don't confuse it with hell. No matter how bad it gets here, it's better than hell. It's a million times better than hell. But no matter how good it gets here, heaven is a million times better. There is going to come a moment when this incompleteness will be made complete. When this partial will be made complete. Whole. And that's what Paul's talking about. All these spiritual gifts, even mighty, get with, if the miraculous is flowing and everybody understands all tongues and interpretation and prophecy, it's still in part. Why? Because we are not with him yet. Look at this. Verse 10 says, But when that which is perfect or complete has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now, when's now? That's now. We see in a mirror dimly. But then, when is then? I want you to go up and underline the phrase in verse 10 when it says, when that which is perfect has come. Then refers to that. What else could it be referring to? Now we see it through a glass darkly, uh, through a mirror, in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. Now the most common position of the person who believes the gifts gifts have ceased is to take that phrase in verse 10 where it says, when that which is perfect has come, and say, this is talking about the closed canon of Scripture. When Paul wrote this, he was still writing the letters that have become our Bible. But when we have everything that God wants between two covers, that's when that which is perfect has come. We'll have God's holy word, the canon is closed, and now we no longer need the gifts. And you know how much I love the Bible, right? You know how much I respect the Bible. We cannot stray from the Bible if we are to have good, solid doctrine. But the Bible, it, reading the Bible itself, we can't possibly come to that conclusion. 
Because when that which is perfect has come, Paul describes it like this. I'll see Jesus face to face. I will know just as fully as I am known. Do you see Jesus face to face? God the Father face to face? Do you know God as well as he knows you yet? Do you? Anybody? You better not raise your hand. I'll come up here. I'll have you come up here. We'll cast a demon out of you in front of everybody. You don't know everything now. No matter how clearly you see things about God in the moment, no matter how excited when you get a new illumination or revelation about the love of God and how exciting it is, it's nothing compared, next to nothing, compared to seeing him face to face, living forever, eternally, in the presence of God. That's the perfect we reverence the Bible, we lean on the Bible, we, we, uh, we, uh, we allow our lives and our doctrine to be governed by the Bible, but we don't worship the Bible, we worship God, and that's who we'll see face to face. God the Father, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, in their manifest presence. Until then, folks, we need the gifts. We need the gifts. The imperfect is, we are still in an imperfect world, and our our knowledge of God and our experience with God, glorious as it is, is still incomplete. And so therefore, until the complete, the consummation of the kingdom, we are still going to have these gifts. They will not cease until we're in the presence of God. Uh, If we only had that to go on, we'd be okay. We could defend the gifts. We could defend tongues. Everything that, that has already gone on before, as far as spiritual gifts is concerned, but we still have this idea that all should and can speak with tongues. And that is why chapter 14 is so important. And we're getting closer to wrapping this up than you think, so don't panic. Because this is where Paul talks clearly about praying in tongues. Let's start uh, in chapter 14. Let's read the first five verses. Where he says, Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts but especially that you may prophesy. For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God, for no one understands him. However, in the spirit, he speaks mysteries. But he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. Underline this, verse 4. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. I wish you all spoke with tongues but even more that you prophesied. For he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks with tongues, unless indeed he interprets that the church may receive edification. Again, he's not making a statement of rank. He's saying in the body, it's more important. A prophecy is more important than a tongue unless there's interpretation. You've heard this before. Tongues plus interpretation equals prophecy. Nothing wrong with tongues and interpretation. But if you're just going to do tongues, that doesn't help anybody. So prophesy. Uh, if you come up with a tongue, you better be prepared to interpret if nobody else steps forward. Let me, let me say something about the next few verses, then I'm going to come back to verse 4. And that's kind of where we'll wind up today. We won't make it all the way through 14 today. But in uh, verses uh, 6 through 12, he, uh, he emphasizes that these gifts that are exercised in public have to be communicated in ways that everybody can understand. Uh, verse 12 here, it says... Uh, well, let me just read this real quick, beginning of verse 6. But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking with tongues, what shall I profit you unless I speak to you either by revelation or knowledge or by prophesying or by teaching? Even things without life, whether flute or a harp, when they make a sound, unless they make a distinction in the sounds, how will it be known what is piped or played? 
If the trumpet makes an uncertain sound, who will prepare for battle? So likewise you, unless you utter by the tongue words easy to understand, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. There there are, it may be, so many kinds of languages in the world, and none of them is is without significance. Therefore, if I do not know the meaning of the language, I shall be a foreigner to him who speaks, and he who speaks will be a foreigner to me. Even so, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, let it be for the edification of the church that you seek to excel. Your motive, again, cannot be your spiritual superiority. It has to be for the building up of the body. 13, therefore let him who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, listen to this, if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays. But my understanding is unfruitful. What is the conclusion then? I will pray with the spirit and I will also pray with the understanding. I will sing with the spirit and I will also sing with the understanding. Otherwise, if you bless with the spirit, how will he who occupies the place of the uninformed say amen? at your giving of thanks, since he does not understand what you say. For you indeed give thanks well, but the other is not edified. Show me anything in this passage where Paul is disparaging tongues. What's he say? You're giving thanks well enough. You, you are edified. You're speaking to God. He's just saying if you're going to do it in public, if you're going to do it in the assembly, make sure it's something that somebody else can amen to. Why? Because agreement is important in the body of Christ. If I'm going to share a prayer, I'm not going to pray in tongues publicly because you can't say amen because you don't know what I said. Now back to verse 4, where it says, he who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. Do you remember all the time we spent in Romans where we talked about this uh, tension? Uh, Let's look back here. You can turn there. Let me read it to you. It's up to you. Romans chapter 8. Verses 1 through 5. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Jesus Christ has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. And he goes on for, there's, there's, there's a two or three chapter section in here where this is essentially what Paul is talking about. Are we going to walk according to the flesh or according to the Spirit? Once you are born again, you have a new spirit that is inclined toward the spiritual, toward the things of God. But you still have this flesh which has its own appetites, its own desires. The idea here is that it is not just God outside of us pulling us toward himself, but that our newborn, recreated spirit also has, also is simply inclined toward him. But if what we feed are the appetites of our flesh, we make our flesh stronger and we starve our spirit. And what's going to happen as a result? We're going to walk after the things of the flesh. We're going to order our life around our desires and our sinful appetites. So what we need to do is feed, nourish, strengthen, and edify our spirit. We need to edify our spirit. And what happens when, he, when, when somebody speaks in a tongue? They edify themselves. 
Do you think speaking in tongues or praying in tongues is not important? I'm not saying that's the only way to edify yourself. Paul said himself, he said, never mind the body. He says, when, I'm praying, when I pray in the spirit, my mind is unfruitful. And he doesn't say that's okay. Because we're to love God with our minds okay. So what's he, what's, we're, we're to love God with our minds as well. So what's he say? Well, I'm just not going to pray in the Spirit anymore. No, I'm going to pray with the Spirit, but I'm also going to pray with my mind. I'm going to spend some time praying in tongues, and I'm going to spend some time praying in, my, in language I understand. It's not either or. A, a, a concrete illustration I can give you from my own life. I've shared this before. Many of you, many of you have shared something similar. When I worked at uh, Canaan Land, this was a particular uh, truth. When I worked at, this was the first ministry j- job I had working with a bunch of uh, crack addicts down in southern Alabama. And I would walk the grounds praying for these guys one by one. I, I, I knew every one of these 20 guys, knew their names, uh, knew uh, so much about them. But I didn't know everything about them. But I knew what their individual struggles were. And I would go and I would pray. And I would just pray down this list in my mind. And I wouldn't say it wouldn't happen every night to every guy. But there was always somebody. I'd be praying for them. And I prayed everything I knew to pray for them. And I knew this guy's had a family struggle. This guy's fighting this. This guy's fighting that. Uh, and when I, I, I get to the end of everything I knew to pray, I still felt a burden to pray. I know I'm not done praying for this guy. God is laying something on me, but I prayed everything I know to pray. That's when I switch over to praying in tongues. And I know God is praying through me. I don't think it's been all that long when I shared the story about how my mom was uh, moved to pray for her brother. And she knew there were some things about her brother that really needed uh, God's intervention. Uh, wasn't living for Jesus at all. He, uh, just, uh, there were some things about, about his, his life that were not right. So she prayed everything she knew and still was burdened. So she said, well, well, it must be this. So she starts praying for that. Couldn't get the release to stop, uh, to stop praying. So she started praying in tongues and then finds out that about the time she was praying was when he had fallen halfway down a stairwell, I think. He was working in some school and put his arm, reached out to catch himself and put his arm through a window and slashed his... Uh, Slash his arm, arm open and nearly bled to death. She didn't find that out until hours after she'd prayed. And sometimes we don't know. Sometimes we, we might not know this side of heaven, what we're praying about. But it is important. And again, it's not just praying for others. We are edifying our spirit, and that helps us walk after the things of the spirit. Now, I'm going to do one more passage here before we wrap up. And I'm not going to say much about it, but I will come back, uh, Lord willing, to address this, I'll be, we'll be back, but uh, if, uh, I, I believe there's, there's more to say about this than I'm going to say today. I just don't want you to think I'm dodging it. There's a kind of a confusing passage that comes next in verse 20, still in chapter 14, where it says, Brethren, do not be children in understanding, however in malice be babes, but in uh, understanding, sorry, I'm in, the wrong, no, I'm in the right spot here. Uh, in the law it is written, verse 21, with men of other tongues and other lips I will speak to this people, and yet for all that they will not hear me. Therefore, Verse 22, this is the confusing part. Tongues are a sign not to those who believe, but to, those, but to unbelievers. But prophesying is not for unbelievers, but for those who believe. Therefore, if the whole church comes together in one place and all speak with tongues, and there comes in those who are uninformed or unbelievers, will they not say that you are out of your mind? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or uninformed person comes in, he is convinced by all. He is convicted by all. And thus the secrets of his heart are revealed. And so, falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among you. Now, if you read through that passage a couple of times, you will see that on its surface, it seems a little self-contradictory. 
uh, at least when it's talking about tongues and prophecy as a sign. Who is it a sign to? And a sign for what? Let me just say this, and, and this is a pretty simple response. I still think I have the heart of this, and I'll pray about it and study, and if you've got some more insight, I'd love to hear from you, but I'll, I'll say some more things next week. I just want to say this, that number one, tongues do not primarily serve as a sign. He's not saying, he doesn't say here, the primary purpose of tongues is as a sign to the unbeliever. He's saying insofar as tongues is a sign, it is a sign to the unbeliever, not the believer. I've said the same thing about the miracles of Jesus Christ. And the Bible says, these signs did Jesus do, and many others. But was the primary purpose of Jesus' healing ministry uh, a sign? It wasn't. It's easy to, to look at this from, if you've not really read Scripture, if you've never heard what Jesus himself or what the Scriptures say about this, it's easy to say, well, of course Jesus did miracles. He had to do something to prove that he was God. But the Bible doesn't bear that out at all. Jesus, it tells us that Jesus was moved with compassion. In fact, on the occasions when he was asked for a sign, do something, Jesus, to prove you're Jesus, what did he do? He didn't do it. And I think one of the reasons he didn't do it was to say, that's not why I do this stuff at all. I'm here to show you what God does in the presence of sickness. He heals. Same way with tongues. Tongues isn't a sign. It doesn't exist as a sign to the unbeliever. But it can serve as a sign to the unbeliever. All right? The other thing in this passage I wanted to point out is the reference to everyone speaking in tongues. Because you've probably been, if you've been with us any length of time at all, you've probably been in a service where you have been encouraged. Uh, David Husky did this. Encouraged us all to what? Pray in tongues together. Everybody, go ahead. Just let it out in your prayer language. And we look at this verse and say, but it says right here, don't do that. If we, if we speak in tongues all at once, uh, they're going to say we're mad. Paul clearly wasn't encouraging this. Not what he's saying. He's talking again now about the service. If the unbeliever comes in and all he hears is tongues, doesn't hear a sermon, doesn't hear a prayer that, that he can understand, he is going to think we're crazy. And we, Well, what's the point in us all praying in tongues at once? What's the point in us all praying at once? You understand that even if I'm the only one praying out loud, 200 of us in here, and I'm going to say, I'm going to pray, you guys just agree. Uh, that sounds very easy to understand, but you know, at this hour, there are millions of people doing the same thing. And across this world, at any given time, there are millions, hundreds of millions of, times, uh, of people at the same time praying to God. Does God hear and understand them all? Absolutely, he does. Okay, so God's not confused. And again, if we come together in agreement and we want to take a moment to give thanks to God well enough, as Paul says here in chapter 14, you are giving thanks to God well enough. We, as we all believe, we can do that. There's nothing confusing about it. What's confusing is if you stand up over there with a, with a word and a tongue and you stand up over here with a word and tongue and you try to shout over one another or if you try to contradict one another over an interpretation, somebody gets up with a tongue, somebody else gets up with the interpretation, you don't like it, so you stand up with a tongue and you give another interpretation, that's when people are going to think we're crazy. We start having warring tongues or, or uh, you know, competing tongues. That's what he's condemning here. We can all praise in tongues at the same time. We can sing in tongues at the same time. Just remember... It doesn't make you more spiritual than anybody else. Just because you speak in tongues doesn't even mean you're more spiritual than somebody who doesn't speak in tongues or believe in it at all. 
Can I share one more quick story with you? I think I shared this before. I know I did, but some of you haven't heard it. Some of you need to hear it again. This was back in high school. And there was a girl I really liked, and she loved Jesus. I mean, loved Jesus. She was a, she was a pretty mature believer. Uh, really more mature believer than I was, if you can imagine. Uh, but this, and this was high school. All right, I had a lot of zeal and not much knowledge. But man, I knew we were a superior church because we believed in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We believed in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And by the way, this is what opens the door. This is what grants us this facility to pray in tongues. The reason we can all pray in tongues is because we're baptized in the Holy Spirit. Well, she didn't believe the baptism of the Holy Spirit was a separate. She had a more traditional Baptist background. Absolutely born again. Absolutely loved the Lord. Mature believer, but didn't believe in this, this, the, the infilling, the, the secondary experience, the subsequent experience of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Didn't believe in tongues. She knew I did, of course, and we're trying to wrestle through this because we know it's like, man, if we're really going to serve God together, we've got to be in agreement on this. And she asked me this. She asked about a, particular, a guy that, 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 this is going way back, but there was a guy we both knew. He went to our church. He was fired up, man. He was bold, and he was a tongue talker. But, man, he was about this deep. Everybody knew he was immature. Everybody loved him because he was energetic and bold, but he wasn't deep. And she asked me this, are you saying that so-and-so is more spiritual than I am? And I knew the answer was no, but I had to say yes because it fit my doctrine. So I said, well, yes. She starts bawling. It was the most offensive thing I could have said to her. And I knew in the moment, that's, of course, that's, there's no way. And so it really kind of rocked my whole world. But that's really what Paul's saying here. You know, it doesn't take spiritual maturity. It doesn't take spiritual depth to speak in tongues. It's the Holy Spirit. It just takes, you just got to be yielded. You just got to believe. What are the marks of Christian maturity? It's the fruit of the Spirit, which we're going to see in Galatians. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are the things, as we display these, we display spiritual maturity. But tongues is easy, man. Anybody can do that, and we should. We should be willing to do it because it'll build us up. Tongues and interpretation, prophecy, all these things, they're good for each other. The problem is, even, even those of us who know better, it is so tempting to, to give in to the wow factor. Wasn't that an exciting tongue and interpretation? I wish I could hear from God like that guy. That's awesome. And we're awed by this. And Paul's saying, these are, these are just gifts. God just, he distributes them as he wills. You don't have to be a spiritual giant to flow in them at all. That's not what spirituality is. So do them. Desire them. But desire them for what they mean to everybody else, not what they mean to you. Stand up with me. Thanks for listening. We hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with Christ. Make sure to follow us on Facebook or Instagram to stay updated with what's going on at Living Word Family Church. Have a great day.